0: Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive.
1: Support for this show comes from Flatiron Books, publishers of Real Love, the new book from Sharon Salzberg. Learn to connect more deeply and redefine love with this creative toolkit of mindfulness exercises at SharonSalzberg.com.
2: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Brady Kiesling. He's an historian, archeologist, diplomat, and author who joined the US State Department in 1983 And he served in Israel, Morocco, Greece, Armenia, and Washington. And then 20 years later, in March of 2003, he resigned as political counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Athens to protest the impending war with Iraq. His resignation letter was... Published in the New York Times and was widely republished. After teaching at Princeton University and taking part with other dissident diplomats in an effort to challenge the foreign policy mistakes of the Bush administration, he returned to Greece, where he is a writer, an editor, and an archaeologist. And we are talking to him from Athens. His latest project is Topos Texts, a free mobile application organizing classical texts around a detailed map of the ancient Greek world. His essay, Being Honorable, appears in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. So, Brady Kiesling, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you very much, Rabbi Rami. Well, it is a pleasure to have you on. I guess, in the interest of full disclosure, we should say that you are... Uh, our, pub, our our editor's older brother. So, right? You're, you're Steve's. Yes, I'm a year older than he is.
1: Uh, I'm a couple of inches shorter than he is. Uh, but uh, we respect each other a lot and occasionally he'll ask me to do something for the magazine and my job is to write something that no one else has written
2: and nothing <laughs> even similar to it. So I hope I succeeded. <laughs> I think I think you absolutely succeeded. So let's jump into it. So the, the essay in the current issue of the magazine is called Being Honorable. So let's open with your definition of what being honorable is. Being honorable, I mean, that's a really loaded
1: word because You can use it in class terms, race terms, all kinds of really nasty things. But I want to use it as a term that's a bridge between um, intellectuals, old British gentlemen, middle class Americans, and really everyone else in the world. The idea that Decent people have a code of behavior that sets limits on what they can do. And their judgment of themselves as a human being depends on their ability to live up to the standards they set, to live up to the limitations they place. And, you know, I, I think it's a really important concept. A
2: society without honor is a society that will fail. And you write in the in the essay, your, your critique of our president, Donald Trump, is that he is, I mean, dishonorable, or his sense of honor is, to, to use your word, incomprehensible. How do you understand his his code of behavior? He is a man who
1: is really cannot perceive anyone outside himself. And people like that, can be very powerful and very effective. The only thing he judges is what is good for himself. Um, He demands loyalty from people, but loyalty in this case is loyalty to his own self-interest at the expense of anyone else's. And it combined with the idea that um, loyalty is not reciprocal in any honorable society, the loyalty I pay to you must be rewarded. Even in the mafia, the whole point of men of honor, as they were called, is that within a closed circle, you know, of this criminal organization, people have rules and will respect them. And Donald Trump doesn't get that. I mean, and that that is frightening to me.
2: It sounds like you're also saying that the, polit- the politicians in general, or um, you, you have this line in the essay where you, you talk about politicians prostituting themselves to a paying elite clientele rather than serving their constituency or the, the nation as a whole. So, I mean, how, how deep do you think this uh, lack of honor goes? It's important to remember that
1: politicians Almost all of them have some honorable set of aspirations when they go into politics. I mean, there are a few psychopaths who who do it purely for, for profit. But most people, including many Republicans in the Senate, went to Washington to fix a broken society as they saw it. The problem is when you get to washington you discover that no two people agree on what the fix is it is very expensive to negotiate agreement on any important issue in the united states on who pays taxes on where the money should be spent Um, on foreign policy it's a bit easier because you know they're foreigners and they don't (laughs) we don't really care what happens to them but um because it is very difficult for a politician or anyone else to, to behave in a strictly honorable way in a, when you reach the gridlock of domestic policy, people eventually have to rationalize their behavior and decide, I can't make everybody happy. I will at least make happy the people who pay for my reelection. And that's what happens. And, and they become your real constituency. They become the only constituency whose behavior you can
2: understand and, and deal with practically. So that doesn't sound like a Republican-Democrat thing. That sounds like something systemic to, what, free market capitalism uh, or, or a, a democratic capitalism? Is, is the problem the people that are in the system or that enter the system, or is the problem the system itself, you think? The problem is the system itself. Every, every human
1: society evolves. Uh, we set uh, set up some very good rules for the American political system, you know, 200 years ago, and those rules have evolved. But those rules evolve because people learn to gain the rules and get around them. At the moment... Um, the rules have broken down. They have been gamed too successfully. We need a new set of rules that will force people to be a little better behaved for a while. I mean, systems, political systems are dynamic. You have to change the rules faster than people <laughs> learn
2: to break them. And that's that's <laughs> what hasn't happened. So, okay, that's an interesting way to look at it. You know, I, I, I'm curious I mean I know you're very involved in uh, the ancient Greek world as an archaeologist but also in this new uh, project the topos text Athens which is where you're sitting at the moment uh, was the the birthplace of democracy is that is that a fair claim it's the birthplace of
1: democracy in terms of documentation. I think democracy may have developed in other societies in little forms, but this is the first large or large organized bureaucratized democracy that kept records of itself that we know about.
2: How long did the Athenian experiment in democracy last? I mean approximately?
1: Approximately from, say, let's say five ten BC down to maybe You know, 340 BC. I forget the exact dates, but um, not that long in the grand scheme of things. Something I'd like to emphasize is that one of the good features of Athenian democracy was the rejection of professional politicians. A lot of crucial magistracies were allocated by lot among the various tribes, these uh, these ten divisions of... uh, of Athenian society. So people would do a job for a year and then go back to their farm. And that that is healthy in some sense. Um, obviously, when Athens became a big empire, uh, it needed people with better skills
2: than some of the ones the, the lottery produced. And that was the beginning of the end of the experiment? Or, I mean, how do you understand? Let's, let's say that, that Athens' rivals evolved to
1: Counter the th- the threat that was posed by the uh, by the Athenian state. Athens was too successful um, to keep everybody happy domestically. They needed you know, more and more revenue, more and more places for politicians to get glory, which is mostly outside and in, in fighting wars or in uh, you know in foreign policy, and. Um, so they had to keep pushing outward. They uh, they antagonized their allies, and ultimately the Spartans decided Athens is is too dangerous, and um, we will provide a pole around which everyone else can gather to um, to protect themselves from from the
2: greed and arrogance of the Athenians. So can can we? Um, take the same map that you just laid out and roughly lay it over the United States today i mean you know we're we're over a little over a, a 200 year uh, experiment but you know maybe that's as long as democracies can go before they enter into this period of hubris and when you're talking about you know sparta you know creating an alternative poll, i wonder if you could if you see china doing something similar today with the united states sort of having run its course and now the world is gonna go behind China as a, uh, a balance to, to what's happening in the United States.
1: The Chinese are moving in that direction. The good news is China so far has not been able to articulate a vision of the world that is very appealing to anyone outside. I had a very depressing conversation on the ferry boat yesterday. We went off to a little island called Angistri. We had a visitor in town. And on the boat, it was with found, I found a German archaeologist I knew, who was explaining to me how Putin was wonderful and how Putin was a counterweight to the Americans. And this strikes me as insane. I mean, Putin is very much like Trump, but Trump has alienated so many Western Europeans that that you have crazy people looking for, for alternatives in the stupidest places. And, and that, that is you know, a crucial argument against Donald Trump as president, the fact that you know, educated Europeans, this guy has a habilitation schrift. I mean, he's written a doctoral dissertation a thousand pages long, and he is interested in, in Putin. Um, what does that say about the United States now?
2: So, well, that's that's the question I think that a lot of people are asking is what what is happening to the, the experiment in uh, freedom that that I was going to say was the United States and maybe still is the United States to some extent. But it seems to be, at least in my limited experience, it seems to be collapsing. So who is I mean, I understand what you're saying about the Chinese. The Chinese have never really been. Uh, You know, when they when they built the the wall, it's not like the Berlin Wall, which kept uh, Germans, East Germans in because they wanted to get out. It was a wall to keep the outside world out because China didn't want the influence.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly
2: uh, maybe so. Maybe China is is the wrong community or the, the wrong country to look at uh, for a world vision because they've never really had one. Uh, who else might? I mean, is it Merkel in Germany? Is it? I mean, you know, what's going on in France? Do you see any hopeful balance? Uh, you know, the, the, uh, a, a democracy rising as perhaps uh, American democracy is declining. I'm more optimistic
1: than that. Actually, I'm pretty confident that um, Trump is going to be a one-term president. The the promises he made um, have are all being broken so you know, so unashamedly, and none of the the good things he's promised look likely to happen. Um, he's, he's shown the childishness of his character enough that, uh, yeah, I, I, I believe that the US will bounce back. I mean, we have bounced back always. Uh, the question is, how bad a crisis do we need to tell people that politics matters and you should show up and vote for intelligent, honorable people?
2: and that's that's the crucial point. That that is a huge question because we just don't we just don't vote. Uh, but 14 years ago when you wrote this what with the New York Times in uh, February tw- it's a piece from February 27, 2003 the times entitled it US diplomats letter of resignation this was your letter explaining why you were leaving your post as a as a diplomat and this is as uh, the country was gearing up for the 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 iraq war you you have this really interesting observation that Certainly applied then, and I think is still applicable now. And I'm just going to quote from it. He wrote, The policies we are now asked to advance are incompatible, not only with American values, but also with American interests. And the question I want to ask you about that is you know, in my mind, I can say, Oh, yes, absolutely, that's the case, because I have a definition of American values that you know, I think are the authentic American values and American interests that they are the authentic American interests, but it's just my opinion. So I'm wondering now, because you're living outside the country, you've been living outside the country for a long time. So as you look at the United States, what are the values that we as a people, millions of us um, uphold? Is there a, do we still have a common set of values? We have some common values. I think the value of self-reliance is,
1: is an important one. And that's one of the noble conservative virtues. The, um, I think the commitment, all other things being equal to democracy and human rights is still very strong. The, I mean, some of our values are maybe just squeamishness. We don't want to hear bad news about babies being killed Uh, somewhere and we would like to punish people who kill babies when we can. Um, That said, we don't know how to punish them very well. There, I mean, there's a huge spectrum of American values, which, frankly, are universal values. I think that there's nothing unique about America. I mean, the only thing that's really unique about the United States is the power of the NRA to say that everyone needs to have an assault rifle. Everything else is pretty much universal. And those universal values, when the United States talks a good talk, it allows foreigners to cooperate with us pretty easy, easily and cheaply. Um, the, the problem with George W. Bush, when he went into Iraq, he, those people who followed him into Iraq, like Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of, of Great Britain, um, they found they had committed political suicide for doing it, which meant no one was going to follow us <laughs> into the swamp in the way that they had used to. America needs to take the high road in its leadership in a way that makes it politically painless for people to follow us. And, uh, um, Donald Trump is, you know, is the antithesis of that. I mean, I, I watched... Obama being elected, the way Greek attitudes toward the United States changed dramatically. I mean, he, you know, the narrative was rewritten completely. And, you know, it didn't didn't save us from many things, but it made all kinds of dip- diplomatic things much easier. We developed a very good cooperation with lots of countries around the world. You know, uh, it's not the, the be-all and end-all of of American foreign policy to be liked, but
2: being liked and being respected are very useful. Well that's that's true. You you do say in the article you have this um, Latin phrase uh dum metuant, if I'm pronouncing that even remotely correctly, but it means let them hate so long as they fear. And that's that you saw that as George W. Bush's approach to to foreign policy. Or Dick, there, Cheney's, I would or, say. or Dick Cheney's, yeah, okay. Um, do you still see that as as playing out in uh, our our foreign policy? I would say that that Trump wants to be loved by
1: all, uh, but loved as an entertainer. So um, the I don't know. I don't. I don't think he's internalized that. I, I mean, what he has internalized is instead. Um, let them do what they want. I have lawyers who are ready to lie for me and I can put them out of business. And you know, that's, yeah. that's sort of his strategy ever since he was a child, I think, um, that um, you, know, you can use the system to, to harm your enemies um, if, you are, if you
2: are enough of a sociopath. So let, let me shift gears in the couple of minutes we have left. Uh, you mentioned self-reliance as being an American value. And when I heard the phrase when you just said it, you know, immediately I go to Emerson and his understanding of self-reliance. I think it's maybe the best articulation of self-reliance that we have. And in his understanding, the self he's talking about, as opposed to the self we talk about now, is not the atomized individual uh, as, an, as an extreme libertarian might say, you know, you're on your own. Good luck. The government isn't helping you. No one is helping you. You know, it's Ayn Rand kind of thing. This is, this is a matter of you have to take care of yourself by yourself. But I think the self he had in mind, Emerson, had in mind when he used the term self-reliance was this greater sense of self. I mean, he was influenced by the, the Hindu philosophy that you found in the Bhagavad Gita, where self with a capital S is this divine entity that is our truest nature. So my, my last question in the couple of minutes we have left, since it is spirituality and health magazine uh, what role if any do you see this uh, spirituality playing in the healing of america and moving beyond the the craziness that we're experiencing now i would take the concept of
1: honor as integral to the concept of self-reliance and vice versa the fundamental Tenet of self-reliance is that each person must have their own innate internal moral code that they that they shape and agree to live by. It cannot be imposed from outside. I'm a libertarian in, from that point of view. That said, we l- live as creatures in society and any, anyone who grows up in a reasonable society should be able to detect How a sense of honor and a sense of playing by the rules that honor imposes makes society better. I'd like to believe that honor is a concept that everybody in America can share, that we can definitely, you know, it's not that the people in Washington want. Minorities and poor people to starve and their babies to die. It's simply they don't do not want to pay for them. But put in terms of what is honorable behavior. Let us build up, you know, the moral sense wherever we find it, and appeal to people's morality as best we can. Um, you know, obviously, everyone prioritizes a different set of values—liberals uh, and conservatives. Maybe it's even a genetic difference. But there's enough common ground that I believe um, we will, um, you know, we will find it. Um, I hope that there's, you know, a charismatic new leader in emerging somewhere who will be able to bridge the divide. But a set of rules that we follow and a sense of honor that derives from our self-limitation is, you know, it's fundamental to being happy,
2: <laughs> successful, you know, uh, it's a happy, successful country. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. I'm going to have a lot more questions I'd love to talk to you about. Uh, but, but this really is the end of the time that we're allotted and we're going to have to let the conversation go. But this was absolutely fascinating. And I hope people will take a look at being honorable in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. My guest today was Bradley Kiesling. He's the author of Being Honorable. That's in the current issue of Spirituality and Health. Bradley, thanks for speaking with us on Essential Conversations. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Well, it was our pleasure. Before we go, I just want to let you know that I will be at 1440 Multiversity on August 18th through the 20th, leading a workshop on my book, The Sacred Art of Loving Kindness. 1440 Multiversity is a state-of-the-art learning destination in the California Redwoods near Santa Cruz. You can learn more about Multiversity and register for my workshop at 1440.org. Hope to see you there. Support for this show comes from Flatiron Books, publishers of Real Love, a new book from Sharon Salzberg. Learn to connect more deeply and redefine love with this creative toolkit of mindfulness exercises at SharonSalzberg.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.